You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Welcome to the reading of the Courier-Journal for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. The Courier-Journal is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media and is donated to Radio I by the Herald-Leader. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that makes it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Blanca Michael Ward. We begin with 11 First Alert Storm Team's weather forecast for the next several days. Today, expect a high of 76 with a few showers and warm. Tonight, a low of 62, spotty showers and storms. Thursday, a high of 75, a low of 34, windy and warm. Friday, a high of 48, a low of 35, partly sunny and cooler. Saturday, a high of 54, a low of 42, a few showers. Sunday, a high of 60, a low of 48, mainly dry and mild. And Monday, a high of 67, a low of 42, rain chances return. Your almanac readings for the Louisville area through 4 p.m. Tuesday are as follows. Temperature, a high of 60, a low of 45. Normal high, 50. Normal low, 32. A record high of 72 degrees in 2018. A record low of 3 degrees in 1963. Precipitation for the 24 hours through 4 p.m. Tuesday, 0. Month to date, 2.12 inches. Normal month to date, 2.44 inches. Year-to-date, 7.48 inches. Normal year-to-date, 5.83 inches. Snowfall, 24 hours through 4 p.m. Tuesday, zero. Month-to-date, a trace. Normal month-to-date, 3.2 inches. Seasonal-to-date, 5.9 inches. Normal season-to-date, 10.3 inches. Sun and Moon, Wednesday, Sunrise, 7.25 a.m., Sunset, 6.29 p.m., Moonrise, 9 a.m., Moonset, 9.33 p.m., Thursday, Sunrise, 7.24 a.m., Sunset, 6.30 p.m., Moonrise, 9.26 a.m., Moonset, 10.42 p.m., First moon on February 27th, full moon March the 7th, last moon March 14th, new moon March 21st. And here's a bit of weather history. On February 22nd, 1980, 
Toledo, Ohio was shrouded in fog for the seventh consecutive day. Fog is common in many parts of the country when winter snow melts. And here are today's headlines from the front page of the Courier-Journal. Help due for juvenile detention system. A look at the kids who are facing the changes. Cop killer's conviction upheld by Kentucky High Court. He had received 27 years in jail for death of Deidre Menekdot after HQ sale assurance to keep staff in Louisville. And we begin with this story. Help due for juvenile detention system. A look at the kids who are facing the changes. This was written by Krista Johnson. Following violence in Kentucky's juvenile detention centers, politicians on both sides of the aisle have honed in on the Department of Juvenile Justice and what changes need to be made. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear announced several changes last month, including a pay increase for those working in the state's eight detention centers, the hiring of a former Kentucky prison warden as director of security, providing more protective gear like pepper spray and tasers, separating inmates based on gender and the seriousness of their charges. Additionally, House Bill 3 in the Kentucky legislature would provide nearly $9 million to retrofit and reopen Louisville's downtown juvenile detention center, which closed after Louisville decided not to fund it in 2019. During a legislative subcommittee meeting Tuesday, DJJ Commissioner Vicki Reed pointed to a 2014 bill that significantly decreased the number of children in custody and changed the makeup of the charges for which they are held. In 2012, 43% of children in custody had been charged with felonies, while that rate now is 72%, she said. Given there are far more kids being held for violent charges, staffing ratios should be far smaller, Reed said. Currently, the centers are short about 100 correctional officers. The Courier-Journal submitted an open records request to learn more about the detainees. The data show there were 171 kids in custody January 10th, for instance. Here is a breakdown on their ages, charges, home counties, and more. How old are children in Kentucky's juvenile justice system? Most are 16 and 17, but there are dozens of younger detainees. On January 10th, the youngest was a 12-year-old boy who had been in custody since January 5th for terroristic threats in the third degree, a Class A misdemeanor. He was the only 12-year-old in custody that day. Here's a breakdown of the others. 13-year-olds, 12. 14-year-olds, 21. 15-year-olds, 38. 16-year-olds, 51, 17-year-olds, 47, 18-year-olds, 1. <clears throat> How many girls are in Kentucky's juvenile justice system? Most of the population was male, but there were 13 girls. In January, Bashir announced girls and boys 
would no longer be held in the same centers and all but one were moved to the Campbell County Detention Center in Newport. That change came after a November riot at the Adair County Center in which boys accessed the female-only wing and allegedly sexually assaulted a girl. Bashir said all but two girls would be moved to Campbell County, indicating one may require a higher level of security and at least one other was a very young individual that may need to be closer to services. On January 10th, <clears throat> the one girl not being held at the female center was a 17-year-old charged with assault in the second degree. She had been in custody since October and was being held at the Warren County Center. In Campbell County, the most serious charge a girl faced was murder. She also faced three other charges. How long are children held in the Kentucky juvenile justice system? Children charged with crimes are held in the centers, as are those who have been convicted. Just over 40% of the children, 72, in custody, January 10th, arrived at a center this year. Of the rest, 96 had arrived since June 2022. There was one child approaching a year in a center after having arrived January 31, 2022. The child with the longest tenure was a 15-year-old charged with murder who arrived in August 2021. What's the racial breakdown in Kentucky's juvenile justice system? While black people represent less than 9% of Kentucky's population, 46% of the children in the juvenile centers on January 10th were black. That rate outpaced the over-representation seen in Kentucky's adult jails and prisons, where 29% of the population is black. Race breakdown. White, 72 children, 42%. Black, 78 children, 46%. Biracial, 11 children, 6%. Hispanic, 9 children, 5%. Other, one child, one percent. What counties are the children in Kentucky's juvenile justice system from? There were children from 47 of Kentucky's 120 counties being held in the centers January 10th. The counties with the most included Jefferson, Fayette, and Kenton. When Louisville closed its downtown center, a Department of Justice Day Treatment Center in Linden was retrofitted to serve as a detention center. Only two of the 44 Jefferson County children being held January 10th were at the Linden facility. The majority were sent to the Adair County Center about 90 minutes away. There were 24 kids from Fayette in custody and nine from Kenton. What did the Kentucky juvenile detainees face? There were 58 different crimes for which the children were charged or being held. The most prevalent included robbery in the first degree, contempt of court, and murder. <coughs> robbery in the first degree was the highest at 16%, followed by contempt of court at 8% and murder at 7%. When it comes to the classification of the charge, nearly 75% were for felonies. 
13% for misdemeanors, and 12% for charges labeled as other. The charges labeled as other included a commissioner's warrant, contempt of court, habitual runaway, failure to appear, and a technical probation with violation. Additionally, there was a 14-year-old boy who had been held since December 1st as a fugitive from another state. Classification Breakdown Capital Murder 12 Class A Felony 7 Class B Felony 50 Class C Felony 25 Class D Felony 34 Class A Misdemeanor 19 Class B Misdemeanor 4 Other 20 <clears throat> Which Kentucky Juvenile Detention Center had the most children? The Adair Regional Juvenile Detention Center held the most kids of the eight centers with 38 on January 10th. The others and their numbers were Boyd Regional Juvenile Detention Center, 22 kids, 13%. Breathitt Regional Juvenile Detention Center, 18 kids, 11%. Campbell Regional Juvenile Detention Center, 12 kids, or 7%. Fayette Regional Juvenile Detention Center, 34 kids, or 20%. Jefferson Regional Juvenile Detention Center, 2 kids, 1%. McCracken Regional Juvenile Detention Center, 22 kids, or 13%. And Warren Regional Juvenile Detention Center, 22 kids, or 13%. <clears throat> we now continue with this story. Cop killer's conviction upheld by Kentucky High Court. He had received 27 years in jail for death of Deidre Menjdot. This was written by Ray Johnson. The Supreme Court of Kentucky has unanimously upheld the 2021 conviction of a man who killed a Louisville Metro Police officer in a car crash, according to the Kentucky Attorney General's office. Roger Burdett, a former Metropolitan Sewer District employee, had been sentenced to 27 years in prison after he was found guilty of murder, among several other charges. On Christmas Eve in 2018, Burdett crashed into LMPD Detective Deidre Mendoat's cruiser on Interstate 64 in a work tanker while under the influence of hydrocodone and while watching porn on his phone. In an appeal of the conviction to the Kentucky Supreme Court, Burdett argued that numerous and erroneous rulings had resulted in a fundamentally unfair trial the Supreme Court, however, argued in its opinion of the case that none of Burdett's reasons for a new trial mandate reversal of his convictions and sentence. Four years ago, Kentucky's law enforcement community and the entire city of Louisville suffered a terrible loss when Detective Menjdot was fatally injured by an impaired driver, Attorney General Daniel Cameron said in the release. Our hearts go out to Detective Menjdot's colleagues, family, and friends. While we know the Kentucky Supreme Court's ruling does not diminish the pain of this loss, we hope the victim's family is comforted by the court's decision to uphold Burdett's conviction. <coughs> 
Burdett pleaded not guilty after the initial incident. MSD fired Burdett after the crash, and police said he acknowledged taking multiple prescription drugs the same day. Police also claimed Burdett showed multiple indicators of impairment during a field sobriety test on the scene of the crash beneath the Belvedere. Burdett's prosecutors argued he was later able to walk without issues or signs of impairment after police took him to Metro Corrections. Menjidot's son received nearly $14 million in a settlement with Burdett and MSD in 2021 after filing a lawsuit that accused Burdett of negligence and MSD of failing to properly employ, supervise, and train him. Commonwealth's attorney, Thomas Wine, who prosecuted the case in Jefferson County Circuit Court, said the conviction and sentence reflect the diligent efforts of prosecutors and the LMPD detectives to whom investigated the incident. We appreciate Attorney General Cameron's defense of this conviction and sentence. We certainly hope it brings some solace to D.D. Menjot's family and serves as a warning to impaired and distracted drivers, Wine said in the release. Next we have this story. Papa John's hometown commitment after HQ sale assurance to keep staff in Louisville. This was written by Olivia Evans. <clears throat> in early February, Papa John's announced it will be selling its Louisville corporate headquarters office at 2002 Papa John's Boulevard. The company cited a change in workforce needs as the reason to sell off the building, which has 140,000 square feet of office space. Despite the loss of permanent real estate in the city, the company ensures employees will still physically work in Louisville with the hope of adding more jobs in the metro area soon. Since returning to the office, we have, like other companies, been engaging with team members to figure out what is this new normal that some of us are still building and what works best for team members to support their particular functions. And a physical location has a role to play, company spokesperson Harrison Sheffield told the Courier-Journal. Sheffield said the company will most assuredly have a physical hub in Louisville and is planning to lease office space, ideally within the building they are selling, to maintain employees in the metro area. It is important that we note putting our Louisville campus up for sale is in no way related to our future plans or business performance, Sheffield said. We have such a big presence in the Midwest, so a place like Louisville is critical from a distribution standpoint. The company is keeping its IT, supply chain, legal, and finance shared services team in Louisville. In 2020, Papa John's announced it would be moving its global headquarters to Atlanta, noting the city was home to its largest corporate-owned restaurant market. The company also leases the Atlanta location at 3 Ballpark Center at the Battery Atlanta, which opened in 2021. It's not unusual 
for us to have more leasing agreements on our larger properties than ownership of them, Sheffield said. The company had been operating out of its current location in Jefferson Town since 1999. According to previous Courier-Journal reports, the company incurred no debt when originally building the corporate office near Blankenbaker Parkway. Louisville retained hundreds of jobs, and as the evolution of remote work continues, we see another employer reconsidering its real estate footprint to better match the needs of a changing work environment, said Ben Moore, Director of Economic Development at Louisville Forward. On February 23rd, Papa John's will host its quarterly earnings conference call. Sheffield said the company cannot discuss whether it will be opening or closing restaurant locations, stocks, and revenue plans, or other specific financial details until after this call. As Papa John says it is still committed to the Louisville community after over 40 years, here is what we know. What is the history of Papa John's in Louisville? Papa John's was founded in 1984 in Jeffersonville, Indiana by John Schnatter. By 1986, the company was up to nine franchise locations, according to John Schnatter's website. Ten years after the company was founded, there were 500 Papa John's chains open nationwide in 1999 when the company moved into its Louisville corporate headquarters. Papa John celebrated restaurant number 2000 opening. There are more than 5,500 Papa John's locations in operation worldwide, according to the company's securities and exchange filing from September 2022. In 2018, Schneider stepped down as the CEO of the company following his criticism of the NFL leadership and players during protests of the national anthem. At the time, Schneider publicly blamed NFL players protesting as the reason for a decline in pizza sales. A few months later, Schneider would also resign from his position as chairman of Papa John's after admitting to using a racial slur. He also resigned from the University of Louisville's Board of Trustees. In July 2018, the University of Louisville removed Papa John's as the title sponsor for Cardinal Stadium. The stadium remained without a sponsor until last month when LNN Federal Credit Union signed a 20-year, $41.3 million naming rights deal with the university. In September 2020, the pizza giant announced it would be moving the company's global headquarters to Atlanta. At the time, the company said about what 550 of its 750 corporate jobs would remain in Kentucky. Today, there are nearly 600 corporate jobs left in Louisville, and the company is currently hiring for at least 35 more positions in Louisville, Sheffield said. During the pandemic, former CEO and chairman Schneider pledged to donate 
$1 million to small businesses for COVID relief through the John H. Schnatter Family Foundation. In 2021, Papa John's rebranded and removed the apostrophe from the company name, another step in moving away from company founder Schnatter. What is Papa John's ongoing commitment to Louisville? While Papa John's is selling its corporate headquarters, the company claims a strong commitment to its hometown of Louisville. Some of the most exciting work going on at Papa John's is happening out of our corporate hub in Louisville, Sheffield said. Sheffield said this ongoing commitment to Derby City is most visible through the Papa John's Foundation, a nonprofit focused on building community. The Papa John's Foundation, which launched in 2019, supports Greater Louisville Incorporated, the Metro Area Chamber of Commerce. The Papa John's Foundation has significantly contributed to GLI's programming and has been a driving force in bringing our diversity, equity, and inclusion work to life. Olivia Sievert, Senior Director of Communications and Public Relations, told the Courier-Journal. According to an IRS 990 form filed in 2020, the Papa John's Foundation contributed $50,000 to GLI and $25,000 to the Community Foundation of Louisville. Sievert notes the Foundation was an early funder of GLI's inclusion efforts in its five-year strategic plan for Louisville. The Papa John's Foundation continues to fund our Power to Prosper Minority Business Accelerator. Because of their generosity, we have been able to provide the Power to Prosper Accelerator, which is valued at $15,000 per participant, free of charge to growing minority-owned businesses, Sievert said. Since the start of the Accelerator in 2021, GLI has graduated 24 businesses. According to information provided by Papa John's to the Courier-Journal, the company has invested $300,000 in local community organizations since 2020. These organizations include GLI, Boys and Girls Club of Kentuckiana, University of Louisville, Dare to Care, Kentucky Harvest, Junior Achievement, BizTown, and home of the innocents. If we were trying to sneakily move out of Louisville, we're probably not doing a very good job of it, Sheffield said. Some of that engagement with the community has actually increased over the past few years as our business has grown and our overall company has transformed itself. What is Papa John's business outlook? In early 2020, Papa John saw massive sales spikes, namely due to the stay-at-home orders issued for the pandemic. Across its North American stores, Papa John saw a nearly 18% sales increase for all of 2020. But by early 2021, the pizza company saw its sales decrease and its stocks drop. One year ago, Papa John's stock closed at $114.27 per share. On Friday, February 17th, the stock was $96.78 per share, more than a 15 decrease in value. 
Sheffield noted that since the announcement of selling of the Louisville's corporate campus headquarters, there has been no change in the corporate team composition. Any change in Louisville is not related to stock prices, he said. On February 6th, Mac Wetzel, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Papa John's, based in Atlanta, announced his intention to resign from his position on March 17th, according to a Securities and Exchange filing. On February 16th, a Papa John's Board of Directors member, Olivia Kirtley, based in Louisville, announced her retirement from the board after nearly 20 years. This includes readings for the first sections of the Courier-Journal for this Wednesday, February 22, 2023. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Blanca Michael Ward. This is Tom Lewis, the new Executive Director at Radio Eye. I feel thrilled and blessed to join the Radio Eye team, and I'm so excited to be part of what the future holds for us. And I do mean us. As a listener, you are an integral part of the Radio Eye team. What we do, we do for you. We strive to inform you and hopefully enrich your life in the process. So we sincerely want your input. I'd love to hear from you. If you have programming feedback or ideas, please feel free to email me at tom.lewis at radioi.org or call 859-422-6390. Thanks. We now continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023, and we turn to the Metro section, beginning with today's obituaries and death notices. Steve All, 73. William Sonny Taylor, Baltimore, 81. Dinah Michael Bicat, 61. Darlene Brock, 70. Zarek Kai Burden, one day. Archie Jean Howard Burton, 91. Edna Capel, 83. Sue K. Chesser, 80. Harold Sonny Cravens, Jr., 66. Kenneth Michael Flock, 68. Paul Anthony Gibson, 34. David B. King, 83. Mary Frances Mudd Lilly, 83. Larry Emmett Lossner, 78. <clears throat> Evelyn Joyce Aiken Lucas, 94. Michael S. Mikey McCollum, 43. Phyllis Melton, 80. Gary Messinger, 74. Alonso Maurice Palmer, the fourth, 15. Jerome Joseph Jerry Rankin, 74. Aaron Stahl, 46. William Bill C. Terry, 94. Edwin Vasquez Godoy, 54. 
Nora Lucille Wheeler, 98. <clears throat> Law will aid wildfire flood recovery in New Mexico. Dateline Santa Fe, New Mexico. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham on Monday signed to use zero interest loans to help local governments in the arid southwest state repair or replace public infrastructure damaged by wildfires or subsequent flooding. <coughs> Begun in early April as a prescribed burn by the U.S. government, it grew into a monstrous blaze that blackened more than 530 square miles. Hundreds of homes in northern New Mexico were lost. A subsequent report by the U.S. Forest Service said its employees made multiple miscalculations, used inaccurate models, and underestimated how dry conditions were. Experts say the resulting environmental harms will endure for decades. Congress and President Joe Biden have approved nearly $4 billion in recovery funds. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is still establishing claims offices. The state law just signed sets aside $100 million in loans for counties, cities, and municipalities to begin work on projects that could include a water treatment plant in Mora County, or roads, bridges, and fences in Las Vegas, where thousands of residents evacuated last spring. This funding will help get infra infrastructure rebuilt and repaired immediately, empowering our communities to continue to heal, the governor said in a tweet on Monday. New Mexico's Department of Finance and Administration will manage the loan program. Supporters of the legislation said earlier that state funding would go towards projects the Federal Emergency Management Agency has indicated it will cover under federal guidelines. That means FEMA funds could be used by the local governments later to repay the state loans. The U.S. Forest Service has resumed controlled burn operations nationwide after a 90-day pause to review prescribed fire policies and procedures. We continue with this story. Campus shootings. Local colleges preparing for worst-case scenario. This was written by Billy Coben. This month's deadly shooting at Michigan State University, in addition to recent mass casualty incidents at public places around the country, served as a chilling reminder to students, parents, faculty, staff, and administrators at schools in the Louisville area of the need to prepare for active shooter scenarios. The February 13th shooting on the MSU campus in East Lansing, Michigan, left three students dead and five wounded with a 40-year-old gunman dying of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The Courier-Journal reached out to several universities in Louisville, southern Indiana, and Kentucky for more information on their active shooter and emergency response plans. Here's what officials shared. <clears throat> University of Louisville. UofL has a step-by-step -step procedure for responses to active shooter scenarios, and it is available at 
louisville.edu slash policies slash policies hyphen and hyphen procedures slash page holder slash pro hyphen active hyphen shooter. The procedure covers everything from an emergency operator sending out a campus-wide notification to the steps campus community members should take <clears throat> to the law enforcement response and then the post-incident action. The university also provides online information on the run, hide, fight response to active shootings, which is what many schools around the country, including Michigan State, also use. Simmons College of Kentucky, a spokeswoman for Louisville's HBCU, with its campus south of downtown in the Limerick and Old Louisville area, said Simmons College of Kentucky practices and uses the run, hide, fight principles in active shooter situations. Bellarmine University. Bellarmine University spokesman Jason Sissel said, we can't provide a lot of specifics about our own plans to respond to these scenarios, but he said the Catholic institution located off Newburgh Road has a comprehensive emergency operations plan that deals with a variety of situations, including active shooter incidents. We work to educate our campus community on what to do if something like this were to happen, Sissel said. Our Office of Public Safety provides training presentations around these scenarios. The university provides information to its community via bellarmine.edu slash security slash active hyphen aggressor hyphen information. <clears throat> If an active aggressor is on campus, there may not always be a pattern or method to their assault. These situations demand immediate action by all involved to protect themselves while waiting for law enforcement to neutralize the threat, the university website's page on active aggressor information says. If law enforcement is not yet on campus, call 911 immediately and then call Bellarmine Public Safety at 502-272-7777. Bellarmine's Active Aggressor Information page also includes a link to the FBI's Run, Hide, Fight video that covers recommended steps to take in an active shooter situation. Indiana University Southeast. Indiana University Southeast, based in New Albany, joins the six other Indiana University system campuses in following certain safety and response procedures. IUS and the other IU campuses remind students, staff, and visitors of the Run, Hide, Fight protocol. Benjamin Hunter, the Associate Vice President and Superintendent of Indiana University Public Safety, said police chiefs, administrators, and other officials from the different campuses have held discussions this year on tabletop plans related to active shooters and other emergency situations. The lessons we've learned on any of our campuses can then cascade out to the others, Hunter said. 
We can't do it alone, so we work with our partners, like the New Albany Police Department, and have a memorandum of understanding in place with Indiana State Police. More resources on safety and active shooter responses are available online at emergency situations. Emergency Management and Community, Protect IU, Indiana University, and Active Shooter Aggressor, Emergency Situations, Emergency Management and Continuity, Protect IU, Indiana University. <clears throat> Spalding University. Spalding University, with its campus south of downtown Louisville near Simmons College of Kentucky, has resources online regarding emergency preparedness and response at spalding.edu slash wp hyphen content slash uploads slash 2022 slash 05 slash may hyphen 2022 hyphen update hyphen emergency hyphen preparedness hyphen and hyphen response dot pdf additionally a handbook on different emergency situations for students, faculty, staff, and visitors is available for quick reference at www.spalding.edu emergency. Active shooter scenarios are covered in the handbook. University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky officials said, while they don't publicly release security plans, all UK police and communications officers are trained to respond to active aggressors. The university security personnel train with the Lexington police and fire departments as well. Whitney Sidkey, UK's Director of Issues Management and Crisis Communications, said the university's officers arrive at an emergency scene on average in about two minutes. Part of the response to active shooters or other emergencies, according to Sidkey, includes using UK Alert, the university's emergency notification system, to immediately notify the community of the situation and any actions required, such as avoiding an area or sheltering in place. This also notifies parents and family members who are signed up to receive alerts. The UK alert system also includes around 9,000 desk phones and over 50 blue emergency towers, which provide emergency push buttons and notifications. UK police also hosts active aggressor trainings at least once per semester. The training, Sidkey said, is built on the avoid, defend, deny ADD or run hide fight strategy. Other resources are available at police.uky.edu slash safety. We continue with this story. <clears throat> Inmates, families getting free calls. Jail's new system allows using phone twice a day. This was written by Jonathan Bullington. Louisville Metro Corrections recently linked a new contract that will make phone calls free for people who are incarcerated and their loved ones. 
While some details of the deal with Smart Communications Holding Incorporated have raised concerns from local and national advocates, jail leaders are hopeful the Florida-based company services will make it easier for people behind bars to stay connected with the outside world while also improving their mental health and safety. Here's what to know about the deal. <clears throat> will phone calls really be free? The short answer is yes. In the past, people who wanted to receive a phone call from someone being held in jail had to create an account with Securus Technologies, the jail's previous provider, and deposit money into that account. Calls were capped at 15 minutes and could cost as low as $1.85 to a local landline and as high as $9.99 to a cell phone. The new deal will still require people to set up an account, this time with smart communications. But now each person held in the jail will be able to make two 20-minute phone calls for free every day. As a reminder, unless the phone call is between an attorney and their client, those phone calls will be monitored and recorded. Can I still visit my loved one in jail? Yes, but maybe not the way you're imagining it. You might think you're going to sit at a table with your incarcerated loved one or pick up a phone and talk to them through plexiglass in a booth. That kind of visit hasn't been offered in Louisville's jail for decades. Instead, people who head to the jail for a scheduled visit see their loved ones on a video screen. <coughs> Those on-site video visits were free through Securus and will continue to be free with smart communications. If you didn't want to go to the jail and had high-speed internet and a webcam, you could create a Securus account and schedule a remote video visit, which used to cost 25 cents a minute. Under the new deal with smart communications, Remote video visits should cost 15 cents a minute based on the company's bid documents. Only the person's face will be shown on the camera, blocking what the company calls backgrounds, gang signs, hand gestures, nudity, and other virtual contraband. And any time a person does not directly face the camera, the video feed will temporarily cut out and a warning sign will appear telling the user to face the camera. Another feature the company says is designed to prevent visual contraband. Once again, video visits with anyone other than the incarcerated person's attorney are monitored and recorded. Can I email or text someone in jail? Part of Smart Communications' new deal with Louisville includes tablets for each person held at the jail. Those tablets can be used for video visits or for an electronic messaging system akin to email. Like phone calls and video visits, those messages are not private. Some privacy advocates are concerned about a feature of the company's electronic messaging system, which, according to the company's pitch to the city, collects statistics, 
data and information on public users in the community. That collected information includes phone numbers, IP addresses, email addresses, credit card and bank information, and GPS locations. What about postal mail? Since last spring, Louisville Jail has copied any postal mail minus legal mail sent to someone behind bars in an effort to stop drugs and other contraband from entering the jail through the mail. That practice will continue with smart communications. Any piece of postal mail not from an attorney will go to the company's processing facility in Florida. There, it's scanned and sent electronically to jail staff to review. If approved, the digital mail is sent to the recipient's tablet or to a kiosk for viewing. What other features? What are other features of the New Deal? <clears throat> Smart Communications pitch to the city includes an array of other services that jail leaders say led them to select the company as its new provider despite its bid being the most expensive of four telecom providers vying for the Lucachip contact. Some of those features for people behind bars include free access to a digital law library, an educational and rehabilitative video series, digital books, and some entertainment options, movies, television shows, and radio stations. Next we have this story. Police suspect arrested after fatal shooting at Shepherdsville plant. This was written by Ray Johnson. Two people were sent to the hospital Monday night with one pronounced dead as of Tuesday morning and a suspect is in custody after a shooting at a distribution plant in Shepherdsville according to local police. Shepherdsville police officials were dispatched on the call at about 9.30 p.m., according to Lieutenant Colonel Jason Pauley. Two people who had been shot were found at the scene at Gordon Food Services and were taken to University of Louisville Hospital, Pauley said, Tuesday morning, where one was later pronounced dead. Charles Puckett, 24, died at 10.28 p.m. Monday due to multiple gunshot wounds, according to Samuel Rogers, Jefferson County Deputy Coroner. Another person remained in critical condition as of Monday night, Pauley added. Corey Z. Rowland was detained in the Poplar Level Court area 15 to 20 minutes after the shooting, Pauley said. He was arrested by Louisville Metro Police. Rowland's arrest citation said he attempted to turn himself in right before he was arrested in the parking of his apartment complex. The citation said that Rowland told police he left work early and waited in his car for someone to get off work and then shot them several times after confronting them. The citation said Rowland also said he shot another person because they were friends with the individual he had targeted. Shepherdsville Police is handling the investigation. Sharon Devine, spokesperson for Gordon Food Services, said no company employees were harmed. Rowland and others involved were employed by a third party 
who supplements the distribution plant's labor, Devine said. The safety of our team members is of our utmost concern, and out of an abundance of caution, we are increasing the presence of our on-site security team. We are also providing our team members with resources they can use to support their mental health and well-being, Devine said. We now turn to the community forum page and we have this Your Turn piece written by Brennan Eberwine, Editor-in-Chief of Manual Red Eye and a senior at DuPont Manual High School. Cooper Bass is a sophomore at Bullet High School and is the Content Editor and Social Media Director of Liverware. Ramona Pierce, a senior at Danville Independent High School, who is also editor of the New EdU and coordinates the Kentucky Student Voice Team's Press Corps. These guest columnists write, student journalists need to report freely. This month, with the help of Senator Gerald Neal, student journalists spurred the filing of Senate Bill 132, the New Voices Act, a bill to protect the freedom of school-based reporting. The need for more just democratic Kentucky schools is especially apparent in a time when the free press in the Commonwealth and the United States is struggling. Kentucky has been hit hard by the consolidation, closure, and commercialization of local journalism. However, the genesis of journalism's woes cannot be separated from the weakening of scholastic journalism programs across the state. The programs themselves, which comprise an essential pipeline to sustained quality coverage that is both informative and transparent, appear to be both underserved and under-examined. Kentucky needs more student journalism. None of the sources we investigated, the Kentucky Department of Education, Western Kentucky University's Office of Student Publications, and the Kentucky Press Association, keeps close track of high school journalism across the state. But anecdotal evidence from students we have surveyed and interviewed suggests that the vast majority of Kentucky, Kentucky public high schools lack any sort of student journalism program at all. Furthermore, established newsrooms are primarily concentrated in large schools with magnet programs, as well as within student bodies from disproportionately higher socioeconomic backgrounds. In an era in which education and classroom experiences are plagued by political polarization, Resources that provide for and enrich schools' potential as engines of democracy and student voice hold unique power. Scholastic journalism, alongside the rights and agency of its student writers, is a critical tool in shaping and strengthening the future of the journalism field, as well as in supporting young people to tell the stories from inside their education experience. A lack of student journalism is a lack of an essential feedback loop <clears throat> about what is working or not in Kentucky education. In schools without a newspaper altogether, pressing issues can go acknowledged, unacknowledged. 
Hayden Watkins, a Rowan County Senior High School junior, provided a ready example. My school student government tried to amend the school's dress code to include the Confederate flag as a hate symbol, but was shot down almost immediately by administration because they didn't want to rock the boat. But without rocking the boat, several students in my school still feel unwanted and unheard, he told us. Student journalism programs are a direct avenue towards ensuring equity is not just articulated, but also implemented. Arnav Darmagada, a Russell High School senior who also has no newspaper in his school, explained how the benefits of student journalism transcend the impact on the student journalists themselves. Student journalism is a highly effective avenue to create accountability for a system that works for all, he said. This concludes, concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Wednesday, February 22, 2023. Your reader has been Blanca Michael Ward. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.